Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, Ned. Hello, that's a way to start, isn't it? There we were yeah. in our Zoom meeting, not knowing how to start a podcast. Yeah, season um, but that's as good a way as any. Yeah. <laughs> how are you doing, David? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I've just, uh, well, as you can see and our listeners can't, I've just arrived in my, what will be my home for the next two and a half weeks every afternoon, uh, a hotel suite in Girona, which after this call I will convert into the mobile studio from which we will be co-commentating on the Volta Espana. It's like the new normal, isn't it? Like three or four months ago, we would have been surprised that we were that this was happening at all. But now it's just, oh, of course, of course, you're in a hotel room in, in Girona. That's that's how it's going to be. Totally standard. Yeah, totally uh, standard. But what is surprising, I think, is the fact that um, we're here. It's the end of October, and we've still got a three-week grand tour to look forward to, or almost three-week grand tour. It's just incredible, isn't it? I'd it's, never have imagined yeah. in my wildest dreams that the Vuelta would actually be about to start. It's, um, I think you have to give great credit to, ultimately, I suppose, the political will <laughs> mm. to push these races through in the three host countries involved, because there must have been lobbying at a high level to, to ensure that this wasn't nipped in the bud. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's it's miraculous, and what I do like about it, and I think it's it's part of the the reason we love cycling so much, is that it's just um, only cycling could pull this off, and we'd normalise to it so quickly, and yeah. still, essentially, even if there's no crowds uh, at the side of the roads, there's the calendar's upside down, races are overlapping, and yet, you know what? It's just bike racing. People yeah. are still just. Just loving it, and the bike races, the the audience, you know. So uh, it says a lot for the actual essence of the sport, I guess. Yeah, there was this fear before it all got underway that that too many of the races, and especially some of the one day races, would be kind of devalued, you know. Because I mean, I suppose it's happened to a certain extent, hasn't it? Greg Van Avermaet had picked up an injury and wasn't able to compete in Flanders, and Sagan simply wasn't there because he was busy racing in Italy. But really. You look at almost every race, and I think rather than being devalued, they've actually seemed to have attracted a higher calibre of star who's been racing with more intents than in normal seasons. You know, especially yeah. when you think of the one-day, the one-day races like Brabant's Appeal. You know, I agree. Um, I think, uh, and I think we can talk about this because it's the most recent one. It's Flanders. Uh, Flanders. Uh, unfortunately, Flanders. I turned onto it a bit too late to see Alaphilippe was already missing by that point. But Sorry. to have this was the old school World Championships where the the um, the world champion would normally come from the crop of Tour de France riders because it followed only a few weeks after the completion of the Tour de France, which is obviously mm. what's happened this year, but only by a week. Which means that you, you've got a world champion who's in absolute scintillating form, who was also on an ascending spiral, granted, at the, the Tour de France, but was ever-present. And it's, it's, it's fun to watch a world champion who's been at the Tour de France and who is now doing all these monuments that there's no way that would have happened otherwise. 
And yeah. from the reports, and you can fill me more in, but from the reports I, I've read in the last uh, 12 hours or so, it was Philippe who was the catalyst of all the action at, the, at Flanders. So although I turned on and saw Wout van Aert and Matteo van der Poel off the front dominating, it was actually Philippe who'd ripped it up. Is that correct? Uh, um it's 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 largely correct. I mean, I think you have to give credit to Van der Poel in particular uh, as well. He was he was just as aggressive as Alaphilippe. But what was notable about Alaphilippe was how comfortable he looked. Mm. You know, when you bear in mind he was making his Flanders debut, and you don't need me to tell you what a particular race that is, and and how experience pays, you know, dividends in that race. And it's incredibly rare that a, a debutant can mm. can really mix it at the sharp end. He just looked like it was his natural home. Um, and he was breathing through his nose. I mean, he went with he went with Van der Poel and Van Aert's attack there just comfortably. He looked he looked in ominously good form. Wow. But I'll tell you what, David, I was commentating yesterday uh, for the World Feed alongside, alongside Juan Antonio Fletcher. And um, I've actually gone onto the internet and found little clips of, of my commentary, which in a probable breach of all sorts of copyright and flagrant rights uh, restrictions, I don't really care. Come Who and cares? get me if you want. Yeah, you know, go for it. A cease, cease and desist order if it's going to come my way. Bring it on. I don't care. I've nicked it off the internet, David, and I'm just going to drop it into our free at the point of use podcast here. This is the moment that we spotted Julian Alaphilippe um, lying in the tarmac. Oh, Alaphilippe oh, on the Alaphilippe's ground. on the ground. How did that happen? Julian Alaphilippe on the deck, his bike nowhere to be seen, lying on the tarmac, out of the Tour of Flanders, in bitter pain, from nowhere, like a bolt out of the blue. The world champion's dreams have been dashed on his debut in this race. He is in agony. Julian Alaphilippe struck down by the fates. Looks like his elbow. Oh, the pain is intense. And that leaves Wout van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel on their own. Oh, that's terrible. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't obvious, David, what had happened at first. You'll have seen the clip by now. Um, everybody's kind of debating it, aren't they? Um, uh, it's largely, it's largely Alaphilippe's fault, isn't it? Largely? I, I'll be honest, I haven't seen the clip because right. I've got a, a predisposition of not looking up crashes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, my, it's my kind of, it's my inbuilt pro cyclist is that I don't look up crashes but i've seen the the still of him upside down and landing uh so this is kind of the, there is a still of him basically upside down his hand going down which i guess is where he broke his fingers his hand and but apart from that I, my as somebody and i guess this is probably sometimes not watching it is good because now i can say no alaphilippe in his twitchy style yeah he's not the sort of person that is quiet on the bike and even if he's there and, and that's a race situation you know, it's Flanders. Everybody knows how hectic it is uh, at all levels. And you you win it by never switching off. And I don't think Alaphilippe would have switched off, but I do think he's just... And especially as, as you're saying, if he was that good, then he's got two ends of the spectrum. When he's really good, he's twitchy. When he's really bad, he's twitchy. And <laughs> in the middle... <laughs> He's a bit we never see him. We never see him in the middle. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so uh, clearly, he was really good in twitchy, and that twitchiness led him into the back of a motorbike. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's bike racing in Flanders, Milan San Remo. There are certain races where you just know you've got to be careful of motorbikes. Yeah, well, tell me though, because I remember you know, a couple of years ago you were working with um, Peshur, weren't you, about the, um, mm. rider safety? I think in the in the aftermath of one of the tragic incidents, I can't remember which one. And um, t- tell me about there is a slight kind of technical point about the the, the two motor bikes in question were still rolling along very slowly in order to be mm. overtaken 
but they were on the right hand side of the road. No. So, so, so tell me about so the just, side of the road in which they must they must take. Is that a thing? Well, there's. I, yeah, there is. I, I'd say to actually go back to first principles for people to understand bike racing, even world tour racing. Um, they're, they're generally, although they have commissaires there, um, who are the UCI representatives, who are pay, paid a daily rent rate, they're, um, they're not, and it's probably not more than a couple of hundred euros a day to be a UCI commissaire. Mm. And they are there because they have to be, and the organiser has to, in order to be a, a, an affiliated UCI, UCI race, they have to fund that. Yep. And but actually, the the general organisation of the race is generally run by the by the owner of the race um, to differing degrees. So, for example, Flanders, Flanders is Classics, Flanders Classics yeah. uh, Tour de France, ASO, um, Giro d'Italia, RCS, uh, Tour of Britain, Sweet Spot, um, etc. And it's often the culture of that organiser that dictates how the caravan is run, and they have old buddies who operate within the caravan that are dictating where things go. And although the UCI will claim that there is a system in place, it's bullshit, it's terrible. And the only organization that does it really well is ASO. And they have an amazing system in place that is an organizational system, not a UCI system. To the degree, and when you were referencing Jean-Francois Pechou, who used to be the the, um, technical director of the Tour de France until about five years ago, uh, the year following his retirement from that role, which he'd been in for... for, uh, uh, couple of decades he then went straight to the UCI and a great initiative by the UCI to take him in to, to build essentially a race bible mm. of how organizers should uh, run their races regards the the flow of vehicles within it within the caravan uh, where commissaires should be the movement as you said right to left who gets through the number of vehicles the number of motorbikes um, etc and he did that but uh, UCI being UCI they haven't applied it and so we end up in this situation where you can watch a, a Giro d'Italia, you can watch a Tour de France, you can watch a Flanders Classic, and they'll look completely different right. when it comes to, to the movement of vehicles around the bike riders. Yeah. Because the UCI do a shit job. Um, but the system is there in place, and ASO have it, and they do it well. Yeah. I mean, by and large, as a, as a, as a spectator of bike racing, I don't notice these things because by and large it works, mm. you know, and it's only, yeah. it's only when it doesn't work that something like this happens. And in part, I think you, you say you haven't seen it and I can well believe you haven't seen it. You don't really watch bike racing, but, <laughs> but, um, but, but there is a movement at, you know, there is a sense in which Van Aert and um, Van der Poel, who were ahead of Alaphilippe, um, were were close to the motorbike and maybe even using it a little bit. And then at last minute, they just darted out into the middle of the road. And Alaphilippe was on his radio at the time, didn't see that little movement and went just ploughing into the back of this slow-moving mm. motorbike. And it was a real shame because it would have affected dramatically the the the. the the, the next you know that the end phase of the race those three were gone no doubt about it yeah um, you, you know what it's just a, just a footnote before we go on to the, yeah. just move on is and and what you said about Alaphilippe being his first Flanders and mm. just him being scintillated it's, it's a classic uh, kind of psychological behavior of beginner's luck um what you don't know can sometimes be to the, your uh, blessing in disguise and I think that's the reason he was where he was but at the same time the reason that uh, you become a specialist in those things is because you miss there are so many variables that happen in yeah. Flanders yeah so many and <laughs> same and that's the thing and you have to be always completely on edge like terrified the whole time that something's going to happen 
I remember when I did my first one, that was what... And I remember just being overwhelmed by how crazy it all was. And at one point, just seeing somebody in a field. like, the, And I was just... And I was like, well, I was chasing on. And I wasn't... This is uh, 220, 230 Ks in. And actually, it was with Fletcher. At one point, I got back up to the front... I didn't know it was the front because I'd been walking up the Koppenberg. I'd been chasing through groups. I'd seen a do. I'd seen a motorbike crash. I'd seen somebody in a field, and I just felt like I'd been like flat out for like an hour and a half. And I finally got to a point, and it felt like it was calm. And I and I went up to Fletcher and I said, "Fletcher, where are we?" And he said, "It's the front." And I was like, "We're at the front." And I was like, "And I was like, I'm going." And I attacked, and that's how I ended up off the front of Flanders. Brilliant. A story, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, Fletcher, Fletcher, Fletcher was properly good, wasn't he? He was, I mean, yeah, he finished he third, good. he finished third in 2007, 2008, something like that. And ah, he's now he's always, you know, he's finished 12th three years in a row. He was, and he was very funny about it yesterday. Um, actually, commentating, I said, it's the most, how did you end up being like the only Spanish guy who cared about the cobbled classics? Like, where, how did that even happen? And he goes, he, he told this brilliant story about how, um, for his first team. Before he signed for sort of top level, I think it was um, Fasabotolo, wasn't it, his first team, or Ibanesto, I can't remember which. But before that, he rode for a year for a second tier Spanish team. And in one of his first big races, he was just signing on to enter one of, one of his first big races as a kid. And um, Pedro Delgado was um, doing the interviews on the podium and the sign on in front of a big crowd. And every, none, no one knew who this kid Fletcher was. And he comes on and Delgado says so rather patronisingly, you know, what, what race would you like to win one day, son? And he said, I'd like to win the Tour of Flanders in front of a Spanish audience. And apparently thousands of people just roared with laughter at him. They just broke into spontaneous laughter. <laughs> so true. <laughs> he is still, yeah, he was a, he's still the highest place, highest place Spaniard ever to finish in the, in the Tour of Flanders. Yeah. Um, no one's come close, not even Valverde last year. Yeah, a legend. A um, he was a legend. Um, I have to say, sorry, go on. I was just about to say, because uh, before we close on Flanders, because I know you've got a lot, we've got a lot of this we, podcast. No, no, we haven't even talked the, about the, we, the, we haven't, the We're not going to close yet. We haven't talked about Van der Poel and Van Aert. We should probably talk about that anyway. But, but, uh, but Hang on, sorry, my, um, my computer just did something weird, so I didn't hear any of that. Okay. Can you um, hear me now? I can, yeah. Um, no, no, sorry. It was just because I was going to go, because I watched the final bit, and Matteo van der Poel's my, my son's favourite bike yeah, rider. Yeah, you said, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and for the right reasons, see mountain bikes, see cyclocrosses, yeah. and all these things. And I showed him Amstel last year, and I don't give up, etc. And when it came to the sprint, it, it was I, I was saying to the boys, what he has to do now, he's going to have to slow it right down. Huh. And he's going to have to take it, he's going to have to wait as long as possible, because he can't beat Wout van Aert. And so what he has to do is make it a match, like literally a match sprint. So which means there's no aerodynamics involved. And I didn't explain all the technical like that to Archibald, but it was, um, but he was there on the barriers. And I've never seen a rider do what he did. And that's what was amazing was how he literally constantly was looking behind. I mean, more than I've ever seen before because of his bike skills, he can do that and basically be looking behind while he's riding forwards. Because the only way you win that sprint is by, because Wout van Aert was going to beat him, he had to make sure that he started sprinting the moment that Wout van Aert started sprinting. Spot on. And, you and, you, and, you, honestly, yeah. that is precisely what Juan Antonio Fletcher described yeah. would happen if mm-hmm. van der Poel did it right. You've, you've mirrored um, Fletcher's analysis of that perfectly. And yeah. Only a pro's eye could see that, really. I thought, but he did it so brilliantly. Do you know what struck me? that The two of them looked like they looked like, um, you know, Chris Hoy 
and uh, one of his big roles is that French guy who he always used to, you know, at the top oh, of the yeah, yeah, at the yeah. top of the yeah. banking almost in a match sprint, mm-hmm. you know, where they almost mm-hmm. come to a standstill, do a track stand, and look at each other. And curiously, you t- you say, okay, Van der Poel and Van Aert, Van Aert does everything in, on the road, and they both have this mountain bike and cyclocross background. Curiously. Mm-hmm. The only discipline that neither of them have ever done anything in is tra- is the track, yeah. right? And yet yeah. they were expected the two of them to do essentially a track sprint, match sprint, um, uh, with, by the way, quite a concerted chase. You know that wasn't a given yeah. that, that, that they had forty five yeah. seconds of an advantage. So let's keep an eye on that. And you know well. what? that that was cool. So I did. I was then just flicking through social, and and I think yeah, you put a picture on on Twitter saying that's a, a photo for the ages or something. Yeah, yeah, uh, regards. Because the it's we cycling thrives off the narrative, and then on Twitter after that there were loads of these pictures popping up of them together since they were juniors racing against each other. Absolutely amazing images, and it was just beautiful because yeah. they were from children. Yeah, and they know, and that's what gives it. So I guess it goosebumps now. The the poignancy of how they raced that sprint at the end. They know each other inside out. And they kind of, they knew how to beat each other. And so they were literally mano mano and just kind of having to use every single gram of their tactical skill, their physical skill, their experience of knowing each other for the biggest thing they were ever racing. They've they've done everything against each other in this whole trajectory they've both been on. This was the big one. This is like the biggest one they've ever done together. And that's, for me, what was magical about it because you could see it was two masters and two kids who've become absolute masters of what they do, better than anybody else in the whole, in the whole industry, if you like now. And I thought that was really cool because I've never seen such skill and such power and such kind of, such, just everything about it for me, I thought. And as you said, it's, it's for the ages because this happens every three or four generations that you get a pairing like that who are going to spend a few years and they've already spent a decade battling against each other. They've got another five, six years of doing the biggest races, doing exactly what we saw yesterday. Well, let's hope so. But there's no guarantees in cycling, is there? You know, you need to look at what happened to Wat Van Aert at the Tour last year. Remco Evenepoel this year. You know, let's hope so because that, who knows? Who knows what the future holds? That could be a, a one and only thing, but... What was so exciting? Actually, let's hear the, let's hear a bit of stolen commentary. Why not? Avec un ciel si bas qu'un canal s'est perdu, avec un ciel si bas qu'il fait l'humilité, avec un ciel si Now they ease off, and for the first time, Mathieu Van der Poel starts to play games. He looks across. The pressure is off those pedals for now. They move to the barriers. Van der Poel has time in hand still to play and to toy with Van Aert 300 metres to go too far thinks Van Aert too far Van der Poel too dangerous and he waits and he's taking him over to the barriers and shut that room down and he looks now surely it's uh, between these two with 200 metres to go Van Aert has to go Van Aert goes and here we go Mathieu Van der Poel reacts they're locked together Van Aert alongside him just about Van Aert Van der Poel alongside each other Van der Poel powering ahead of Van Aert Van der Poel is going to take it is he Van Aert coming with a lunge Whoa, across the line. I that think was... it was Van der Poel. He, there he goes. Oh, Van der Poel wins Ronde van Vlaanderen. Mathieu van der Poel, and the second time of asking, holds off the great Wout van Aert. 
and that is a sign of the battle of years and years and years to come. One for the ages. When was the last time that Flanders was decided like that? I would suggest almost never in those circumstances. A battle right to the line and after 244 kilometres it was a quarter of a wheel's length but Van Aert lost and you know what? Van der Poel won brilliantly. The anticipated Bob Bernard, what a way of winning to a Flanders. Look at the so celebrations. Cool. <laughs> That's amazing. La pays, uh, so that was that. Um, what was great going into that was um, that they had Flanders Classics had a lot of inboard cameras that they were using live uh, in the team cars and they kept cutting up, cutting them up and it was brilliant because there was so much swearing going on live that i had to kind of like apologize for um but the best the best one of all was um with about 20k to go they cut to the uae team emirates car yeah i saw that and i couldn't there was just nothing it, well there, there was something well i don't know which one you saw but there was uh, i kind of stopped talking i thought i wonder what alan piper's about to say and of course they're all wearing their masks mm. and um at this point piper obviously who had his own riders in the race had given up basically directing his own riders and was just watching the telly and watching Van der Poel and Van Aert, right? And he's staring oh, at the dude. dashboard, staring at the telly, and then he just looks at his driver and he goes, I don't know, mate. They're both fast. Because <laughs> <laughs> they'd obviously just been sitting in the car discussing who's going to win. Who's going to win? Gone back to fans. They'd just gone back to fans. You know, Alan Piper in the middle of the race. There was some great, there was some great detail on the race. Just to sort of like, I've made a little list of stuff that I remember. We commentated for six and a half hours without any commercial breaks, me and Juan Antonio. But it went by in a flash because um, it was just engaging. And it's my, my first commentary on, on Flanders and I loved it. I loved it. Um, there was a great moment where Sepp Van Marker was at the side of the road having a mechanical. He just had a load of bad luck all day, Sepp van Marke, and a Sunweb car pulled up right in front of him where I think he was expecting his own team car to pull into. And out of frustration, he just kicked the bumper. I saw that. <laughs> that was absolutely great. <laughs> it was like handbags at dawn sort of thing. It was, yeah. such a, it was such a good thing. There was another good one where NTT... Um, they kept launching riders off in kind of speculative attacks off the front. Edouard Bosenhagen went... And it was as if he knew exactly what the railway timetable was doing in that part of Flanders on Sunday because he went off the front and you thought, what was he doing? And for about five minutes, he had 20 seconds off the front of this group of the bunch. And, um, and then suddenly, he whips through a level crossing just as they're drawing the tape across and the barriers came down <laughs> and he turned 20 seconds Easy. into a minute like that, like he knew what he was doing. Um, but after his attack went, Max Walscheid, the big sprinter, his, his teammate attacked, and I was laughing my head off because he attacked while he was eating. He had this massive wadge of food in the side of his mouth like this. And and Juan um, Antonio goes, that's important. Why would you attack in the middle of your lunch? You know, like that. And he couldn't. He was just stuck. He couldn't. Like, you could tell he could hardly breathe because he had such a big sandwich in his mouth like that. And he was full on like that. I thought he's going to puke it out in a second. And sure enough, he just shoved his big German mitt into his mouth and pulled out this half digested sandwich and chucked it onto the ground. Wow. It was actually brilliant. But I think my favorite moment of all was Juan Antonio, who speaks very, very good English. I mean, you know, he spent a lot of time mm. in, in the UK and he's married to a, a British lady and stuff. And um, yeah, he says he speaks wonderful English, um, as I'm sure you know. But as many people who've acquired English as a second language, he, he's sometimes slightly unaware of the nuances of swearing and what you can and can't say on the television. So we've been broadcasting for about three quarters of an hour and he suddenly started, apropos of absolutely nothing, dropped the most almighty and crystal clear F-bomb. 
into his commentary. Ah, <laughs> that's brilliant. And I suddenly thought, oh, if I'm broadcasting for ITV, instantly, because of Ofcom regulations, I've got to apologise mm. to any viewers mm-hmm. who might be offended. Otherwise, the, the channel gets fined. Um, mm. uh, but I thought, I don't even know where this commentary is going, to be honest. And if there's, some, if there's some drunks listening in Australia at two o'clock in the morning in Melbourne, they'll probably love it. So I just let it go. <laughs> I just let it go anyway. So that was, um, that was the, the men's race. The, the women's race, what I saw of it, which wasn't much on my way home because it f- finished after the, the men's race, curiously, um, was really interesting. Annemiek van Vluten attacked and Anna van der Breggen went with her, which you'd absolutely expect. That's the, the, the most obvious outcome of all. Mm. But what happened after that was really strange because van der Breggen just went, I am not working with you just not going to just sit on your so there was a lot of kind of like looking around why you got to work together and then we'll we'll duel it out for the win Mm. with the two strongest riders in the group and van der Breggen just went no not today not gonna happen not playing your game today at all Mm. and van vluten went well if you're not playing nor am i and the two strongest riders just drifted back to the bunch like that having been in a race winning position between the two of them van der Breggen just pulled the plug on the whole move which is really unusual (laughs) especially when you've just seen the men's race you've just seen these very evenly matched men you know take it all the way to the line and that opened the door for Van der Breggen to, to work for her teammate, Chantal Vandenbroek uh, Black, who eventually soloed off the front. It was a classic Bowles Dolman's sort of day, mm. very strong team move. And, and, and Chantal, the former world champion, took advantage and, and took, I think it's her first win at Flanders. And that was, um, that's pretty much the end of the women's campaign for 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the while, David, the Giro has been rumbling on. We got some. Um, we got upbraided by certain individuals on social media for not referencing Alex Dowsett's victory last time we spoke about the Giro. I think we were so uh, yes, I, we were I so obsessed with Peter Sagan bursting yeah. my bubble that we forgot to mention that Alex Dowsett took that really very emotional mm. solo win and um, didn't, honestly didn't see that coming. So um, hats off to him. That was a that was a really good moment, and I think he's still looking for yeah. a contract. So hopefully that works out for him. Um, but did you watch a bit of the Giro yesterday? David, did you see something? No, I followed it and I, I messaged with Teo afterwards because I've known Teo since he was a junior mm. coming to Girona. Uh, so we trained together a lot when he was young and I was old. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> it's rare these days that there's a rider that I'd actually message to congratulate <laughs> and because they just don't have any of his connections anymore or, yeah. or any sense of reason to do that. But Teo last night, I said to Nicole, my wife, I was like, oh, Teo, I just saw Teo one. And she's like, oh, that's nice. Tell him congratulations from me. And that's a, a really that we don't really do in our household anymore. <laughs> and so, yeah, so, <laughs> so that was really nice. And I messaged him and he was, he's, so, he's just such a lovely dude. I'm, and to be honest with you, I'm so happy for him. Yeah. Because even in the last few months, I was thinking, I wonder what's going to happen to Teo. Uh, is... Is he going to end up uh, just having a career that could have been, would have been? Well. And perhaps this is the gateway for him to kind of actually kind of open up and, and fly the nest. Well, hold, hold that thought, David. Let's hear briefly from um, Matt Rendell. I've got a couple of Matts to hear from now. Let's hear a little mm-hmm. bit from Matt Rendell, who's been watching every pedal stroke of the Giro since it got underway, unlike you and me. And so he, he can bring us up to speed with where the GC kind of situation is after yesterday's uh, first really long 11-kilometer summit finish and going into the rest day. So a lot has changed and continues to change. And um, Matt, Matt can sort of bring us up to, up to speed. Tu non sei 
come potresti essere. You know the way the grantors seem to go through different seasons, and by the time you get to autumn, you can't remember what spring was like because you know the the, the people are different and the and the and the the race has changed complexion totally. Well, this is a race that hasn't really changed complexion very much. Um, that said, um, and, and normally you get to the end of the sort of mid-race time trial, and that's what people have been looking forward to. And, um, and you go, oh, it's settled now. And we were a bit like that yesterday morning. So Sunday morning, the morning of the, uh, the stakes to Piancavallo, the first big uphill finish. But it wasn't, you know, it was sort of 11k climb, not crazy gradients. No one was thinking that there'd be big um, changes in, in, in GC. Um, and you have this amazing young guy, Joao Almeida, 22 years old, um, who's been leading all the way through. A uh, pretty strong team uh, around him, Deconic Quickstep, always is strong. Um, and suddenly you had a gap on the final, uh, on the final climb. And it was Sunweb, that team that for a long time, OK, they had a great tour uh, with, with, with Hish's stage wins and, 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 and Søren Krah Andersen and so on. Um, but that was about youth and stages, not GC. Suddenly some clarity seemed to emerge because Sunweb had five men at the front. They bossed it for about the final 50k. And Jai Hindley, who's one of those riders you've been looking at for two or three years, thinking he's he's really got it. And yet, when are we really going to see it? Well, we saw it yesterday. And um, you'd had Pozzo Vivo, uh, Nibali, Fulsang, the old timers, the guys that know how to do this. Um, waiting in the wings in sort of 6th, 7th, 8th position, that sort of thing. A um, couple of minutes, two and a half minutes off the pace, um, ready to bounce in the final week because they know that it's all about the final week. Well, suddenly they dropped away. And and then out of nowhere, um, out of nowhere, Teo Hart, who hasn't sort of figured in things. I think he might have started the day 12th yesterday. Um, pops up uh, with Jai Hindley and Kelderman in a lead group, the three of them. Almeida is chasing behind, totally isolated. He did brilliantly to save it and he kept the Malia Rosa by 15 seconds. But um, Gegenhardt wins the stage. Um, Hindley is third. They move into third and fourth in GC. Almeida keeps the jersey, Kelderman's second, 15 seconds back, and suddenly you're thinking, Christ, can Teo Gagan Hart win the Giro d'Italia? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tell you what, a, a, a rare moment of mountain joy in a grand tour for uh, Team Ineo, Seniors, Grenadiers, whatever you want to call them, and, um, and suddenly uh, they've got a GT uh, contender, and he looked the freshest of all of them, although Kelderman seems to have the legs, and certainly he's got the team. And so, um, looking at there's 15 seconds between Kelderman and Almeida. Um, and then there's Jai Hindley in third place, 2.56, I think it is down. 
And one second further down in fourth place, 257, which sounds like a, a ridiculously difficult margin to try and claw back in the third week, but might not be, is Theo Gegenhardt. And I asked Matt, how does Gegenhardt actually win the Giro? How, how does that happen in the third week? Can you talk me through it? Look, he's at 257. Um, first of all, Almeida has to tire. Now, there were signs yesterday. Well, you see, once again, you said uh, in, in your introduction about me, you know, uh, uh, overextending sometimes, which is what we do in cycling, because we've got so little to go on. And uh, uh, um, and you, you, you do, you know, feel through the fog to try and work out, OK, where is this going to go? Um, with... with um, Almeida yesterday, um, on the one hand, um, Hindley made a little push uh, with, I, I, I don't know, about seven kilometres to go. And Almeida was dislodged and fell about about 50 metres uh, and chased. Now, on the one hand, he dropped off. On the other hand, for seven kilometres alone, he chased and he dropped not much more than 30 seconds. So is that weak or is that strong? I think it's pretty strong. Um, it's very difficult to interpret. Um, if Almeida tires, and there are, uh, and, and once again we are always getting ahead of ourselves because there are three very big mountain stages. I mean, yesterday at Piancavallo, um, you know, looked like a big mountain stage, uh, but if you look uh, at uh, the stages to come. Um, when you look at the graphics in the in the front of the road book, um, a couple of the stages to come seem like yesterday's stage, but photocopied um, at two hundred percent enlargement. You know, there are big, but there are massive mountain stages to come. Um, I, I think, like anything, he hangs in there. This is an elimination race. No one has attacked so far. There has not been a single attack by any of the leaders apart from, you know, Bilbao on a descent towards Tortoreto. Doesn't really count. Um, it's an elimination race. race. Um, Teo's young. He looks fresh. He's been able to stay hidden in the bunch, really. And as, you know, when the Geraint Thomas thing fell apart for Ineos... Um, you know, I, I think he stays in there, he watches other people get eliminated and then on the final uh, mountain stage on Saturday, um, he wins the stakes, takes a time bonus and then, uh, you know, and, 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 and I think you do it that way. It's an elimination race. David, I mean, I'd hesitate to call this Jira because we've been through umpteen different favourites and it's, it's, it's anyone's I, I race, looked through, it? Yeah, and I, I looked through Artetoe one yesterday I did watch the last K and he was dominant and there was the the Sunweb uh, arm, armada as usual yeah. doing things so uh, but it, it and then I looked at the top 10 and I was like oh my god <laughs> how can you call this <laughs> it's like it never has there been uh, opportunities like there I don't think I mean the crisis easy to say that here they're entering the third week of one of the hardest sporting events of the year but at the same time, it's uh, there are no precedents in that top 10 for what could happen, I think, in the next week. Yeah. And, and that's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And listen, there's every chance as well that Jao Almeida, who's still in the pink jersey, could win the bike race. Mm. I mean, the one momentary 
day of, of weakness yesterday, but as, as a lot of people have been at pains to point out, he didn't crack. He didn't lose the big time. He didn't lose mm. three minutes. didn't give up the 22-year-old. He very much limited his losses, and he's still in the... Still in the race lead. Well, of course he's going to win. He's 22. Absolutely. What are we thinking? <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Yeah. Oh, my, yeah, nonsense. Forget about it. He's going to win. <laughs> um, yeah. I would suggest, though, however, that um, Wilco Kelderman is many people's favourite now for good reason. He's sitting mm. right on the shoulder. He's got a good time trial. So's Almeida, mind you. The final stage is a 15-kilometre flat time trial. Um, but with all the climbing still to come, it strikes me that probably the the thinking is that Kelderman with the support of his team as you mentioned David which seems to be the most cohesive team once again left in the race um, is in pole position to take the win um, and the gap might still be too big for Gegenhardt Peo Bilbao and the rest of them to, to come back um, so it, this is an extraordinary situation that um, the director sportif of Sunweb finds himself in just a month or so after he was working all his magic with uh, Mark Hirschi Cern Crow Anderson, etc., at the Tour de France. Matt, as we nicknamed him during the Tour de France, Matt Churchill Winston, very different uh, group of riders, completely different race, and a totally different tactical situation to um, get, gain control of, is at it again. And um, just before we started to record this, this lunchtime, David, I, um, I caught, up, uh, caught up with him and had a quick word with Matt Winston. Hello, Matt. Hi Ned, how's it going? Very good, thanks. Thanks for ringing back. Nice to speak to you again. I think it's been a, a few a few weeks since we last spoke um, during the Tour de France, which was so successful for you. And here you are in Italy, at the thick end of the race now, um, and it's all happening again for you, isn't it? As a team, you must be um, you must be delighted with the way it's all sitting at the moment. Yeah, I think we're uh, we're in a nice position um, as we as we head towards the, the final week. Um, yeah, everything uh, has gone has gone pretty smoothly um, over the over the first two weeks of racing, and we've, you know, the, the the first thing we said when we came to this race, and kind of people were asking about were we going to be uh, approaching it like the tour was was no, we're, we're coming with a, a GC focus, and we really want to make a, a good plan for the GC where we can where we can take Wilco as far as possible, and also hold Jai in that in that GC as well, and um, and see and see where we are as we head into it towards the third week before we kind of before we, we we change our plan or change our tactics but we're actually in a in a really good spot now and um yeah we, we we're gonna go uh we're gonna go and try and uh, target the gc in in this final week and and see what happens yeah i mean everyone always talks about it, it, it you know it's true of every grand tour that the third week is always decisive but, but particularly with the giro it seems to be the kind of the bogey week for so many riders who traditionally have found themselves in the the pink jersey a race can unravel pretty quickly can't it but it, but equally it, it always presents an opportunity to come with a charge in the third week for your riders yeah i think when you when you look to it it's kind of when you look on paper i think the the first two weeks of the zero you look at it and you go ah, okay there's some there's some mountain stages there's a few flat stages it's not so hard but i think when you look to the way the peloton's actually raced over the, the last two weeks it's been it's been pretty full gas and it's something that we we kind of anticipated a little bit that the racing would be hard right from day one when you look when Etna's kind of so early in the race, it's your mm. first mountaintop finish on stage three, that we kind of prepared for a hard race. But what we what we have tried to do is is conserve as much as possible for the first two weeks so that we've still got 
energy enough as we as we head into that third week because that it's also a super hard week. There's no there's no easy day next week, and you look on paper and you see stage nineteen and forget it. so it's flat all day. It's easy, but two hundred and fifty three kilometers in the in the last week of a of a Grand Tour is uh, after. Ma- mountain stages either side is going to be also quite a long a long day mentally as well as uh, as physically it feels just watching on it feels like it's been a long giro i don't know if that uh, that makes sense but but tell us some tell us a little bit about wilco obviously you know we, we we feel we know wilco he's been on the scene now at the highest level for for a good few years but he's never been in the position that he finds himself in now and often that's been through a combination of kind of a bit of um, ill health or the odd accident or, or just bad luck sometimes or, or a sudden sort of drop off in form. This is this is uncharted territory for Wilco now, isn't it, with such an opportunity ahead of him? Yeah, I think kind of Wilco has had his fair share of bad luck over, over the years and kind of, but I think that the, the good thing about Wilco is, and he's shown it every time, is just how well he's bounced back each time. Mm. You know, he's, he's he's had bad luck. He's he's had injuries where he's had to be off the bike for a period of time, or or illness, or or whatever. But he's always come back fighting, and um, you know, he he he's quite a cool and calm guy, and kind of. He, he just takes it in his stride and, and that's the way we've been trying to approach the race and, and kind of come to, come into the third week where he can he can then target and, and we have to uh, we have to we have to go for it. And I think kind of mentally he's, he's in that position now where he's he's developed really well through his, his career. He's twenty nine now, so he has quite a lot of experience behind him as well and and, and a lot of learning points where he's he's gone through for his career. So I think kind of he's in a he's in a nice spot where he can he can hopefully have a a solid last week, you know. Uh, and Matt, what's been very apparent uh, once again is the the strength and the cohesion of the team. So he's been fantastically well supported, hasn't he, by Martin Tuschfeld, uh, by Sam Omen, uh, and also and most notably by um, by Jai Hindley of late. Yeah, I think kind of it's also yesterday was really nice to see because, like I say said at the start, kind of we we. We approached the race to keep Wilco and Jai also in the GC, and and when you look to yesterday's performance, Jai kind of already the the mentality had switched there after the TT for Jai, where he sees okay, my teammate is is in contention. We're we're within a minute of the jersey. I've lost a few spots, and and he and he went full gas yesterday, and um, and. I think kind of the ride that Jai did was probably the one of the rides of the race so far where he was so strong. Chris Hamilton had set it up perfectly for him mm. and kind of when he swung off, Jai kind of just gave a little acceleration and Teo and uh, and Wilco went with him and and then he, he almost rode all the way into the finish and it was a really good showing from, from a guy that's also not really, I guess, he's, he, Jai's also a rider that's really developing and he's been around for a while. He did a really good sun tour at the start of the year yeah but he, he's also a little dominant, bit in, he dominated it didn't he? he won on the on the queen stage and really kind of bossed that race yeah exactly he was he was in really good shape then and but this is also for him also uncharted territory and mm. it is kind of it, it's really nice to see kind of how well those guys kind of clicked together um yesterday and and just pulled full to the line you know matt what so different from the, the task that, as you really alluded to, that faced you at the Tour de France, where you had a different combination of riders with totally different ambitions. You know, we, we noticed that day before Sonkrow Anderson won into Lyon, the fact that you'd all collectively taken a day off relatively, hadn't you? And you'd sat up yep. and lost 20 minutes. You know, this is the opposite of the general classification, isn't it? A complete rethink tactically and a totally different proposition for you to encounter. 
Yeah, he was kind of like in the tour. Yeah, we, we I guess, yeah, we, we, we were taking, we were taking kind of easy days, and there's, there's also no real day off in the tour. It's still, uh, it's still a hard day. And what the, when in the tour, the guys really struggled actually on those days where we went easier and said, okay, guys, find the Gruppetto, mm. come to the line, saving as much energy as possible. They actually struggled more with that mentally than the days where we were full on racing because the bike racers and they want to be in the race and they want to they want to be racing all day and when the goal of the stage is to conserve as much energy as possible actually some guys find it quite mentally tough and whereas when you're approaching the gc every day up until probably three kilometers to go and then even then you're feeling like we've still got it's still a bit of a sprint stage and we have a left and a right corner coming up and we still need to just be sharp every day is is intense and you um yeah, you have to be really focused from from kilometer zero to you know two hundred and fifty three kilometers or whatever. But and I, I think kind of the way the race has been ridden so far at the Giro, there's actually not been so many moments where the peloton has actually collectively took a breather and said, okay, we're gonna just go easy for for forty k. We're gonna control it. We're gonna. It's actually been quite full on and quite yeah. aggressive racing. Yeah. And, it's made for made for some really nice racing, but also the guys have to be sharp every day, and that that definitely will take its toll on 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 some people as we as we enter the last week. So, so to, just just to end with uh, Matt and casting forward to the, the final week, I mean, where, where's your where, where's the big where where are the big um, threats to uh, Wilco's? I mean, he's probably the favourite to win the race now. I don't know what the bookmakers are saying, but where's the big threat coming from? Obviously, Jao Almeida has been exceptional, hasn't he? And he still owns the jersey. Little, yep. little signs of weakness, possibly for him yesterday for the first time. But he's not the only rider, is he, that you've got to dislodge and, and look out for? Because Gegenhardt's coming with a rush. And uh, mm-hmm. I guess Peyo Bilbao, amongst one or two others, could still do some damage in this race. Yeah, I think the, when, you, when, you look to the, when you look to the courses of the last week and each day, the, the race is still pretty wide open. We're in a nice spot. We have a nice advantage over kind of a lot of GC contenders over over kind of two and a half minutes on on the gc over gc contenders but almeida you know he's he's super strong and he's he's held the jersey for a long time now in this race and he's not gonna he's not just gonna roll over and and give that jersey away you know and we saw it yesterday we saw it yesterday when he's been distanced he's a young guy maybe then you could you could you go either way at that moment you can either say i'm done i'm mentally and physically done with this and you lose three minutes or you keep fighting like he did yesterday and he showed uh, yesterday was really impressive he showed what a good bike racer he is and i think kind of no one would have had almeida down as a as someone that can win the gc at the start of the race but if you if he's not on your list now then I think you know you've got to be uh, you've got to be thinking he's in with a shot for sure. Like you say, I think Teo's coming into really good shape, and I think kind of Ineos have done a really nice job of kind of turning it around since Gant Thomas crashed out, um, which was really unfortunate um, during the first week. But they've turned it around brilliantly, and kind of now Teo's in there with a GC chance, and I think kind of they'll rally around that. That's that's definitely dangerous. And then the you know the the other GC contenders, all those guys bike races and you can never write them off you know it only takes one breakaway to go and get three three minutes in the bottom of the climb and nibbly slid himself in there or fulgazang and they go on the last climb and they already they've already taken four minutes off you before you've you've realized what's happened so i think it's going to be really interesting i think some guys will fall away and some guys are going to keep stepping forward who those guys are i don't have my crystal ball with me but it would be um it's, it's going to come i think
Yeah, it's going to be great. You're not going straight to the Vuelta after this, are you, Matt? <laughs> um, I'm actually going to uh, go, go home. home for, yeah. <laughs> yes. So I left home on the, well, I've had five days at home Amazing. between our training camp in July and wow. the start of the block of racing on the 2nd of August. And I've been away from home since then. So. Well, you're doing, uh, you're doing a great job. It's brilliant, it's brilliant to watch. And I guess I guess you're, you're, you're pretty glad you, you weren't in the Sunweb team car on the Tour of Flanders yesterday, having your bumper kicked by Seth Van Mark. <laughs> yeah, I saw I saw the video to that, but I think oh, it's just heat at the moment, isn't it? It was, it's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's all good it is brilliant alright listen it's great to watch you're at it again um, best of luck to you I mean same I'd say to all the other competitors battling it out for pink but it's a great spectacle and um, long may it last good luck to you Matt no thanks Ned and uh, speak to you soon hopefully speak to you soon cheers so that's the Giro and um, anyway uh, never mind the Giro the Vuelta starts tomorrow Davis. The Vuelta yeah. starts tomorrow. Yeah, it does. And we're going to be, I'm going to be deep in bike racing again. Watch, I love watching it. I just don't get much chance to do it. So it's going to be you fun. Get, uh, you're going you're to have to now. I'm yeah. going to have to. But it's... Uh, hey, I sent you the profile of stage I one know, on WhatsApp. I, yeah. It was like, oh <laughs> my God. Because we forget this is actually stage four of the Vuelta. Correct. So it's not really so, stage one, is it? So yeah. normally stage four of the Vuelta is a menace. And so yeah. we've gone straight into Menace Welter menace. <laughs> from stage one. It's going to be, I'm genuinely excited. It's normally we come in with a bit of a, we can use those first couple of stages as a commentary warm up. Yeah. But tomorrow yeah. We're, we're straight in, all guns blazing. It's going to be amazing. I can't I wait. know. And, and, and it's quite, a, there are a lot of debutants in the, the Vuelta, a lot of riders who've never made their made their grand tour, making their grand tour bow, let alone their Vuelta bow. And it has the potential, I think, for. Some, some. Well, I think we're going to discover a few new names. I mean, I think that's yeah. that's the one lesson of 2020. We're going to go. Who is he? Where's he yeah. come from? I think that's going to happen. Um, totally. But but it's not just stage one. I, I mean, I had a brief flick through the first kind of opening salvo stages. You know, stage six is the Tourmalet. Got Angliru coming up. We got. I mean, there are just there's summit finish after summit finish. There are a couple of opportunities in the first ten days for the sprinters. I mean, Pascal Ackerman's going and Sam Bennett is going as well. But. Beyond that, it's GC day, GC day, GC day, potential GC day, interesting <laughs> hilly day in the bus. You know, it's just it's yeah. just endless. And there is one individual time trial, only one. Uh, it's thirty three kilometers, I think. Um, but it's going to be one in the mountains, and it's going to be one yeah. of these these summit finishes. And um, it's and the weather, and, and the, weather. The, the fact that it's, it's almost completely in the northwest of Spain. Yeah, it's yeah. it's going to be it's it has the potential to be absolutely savage and i think it's going to be pretty amazing to watch and we'll be doing it uh, and we're going to transfer this podcast aren't we now we are we are just like we did last year actually we're going to drift mm. across and rebrand ourselves in fact never straight far came into existence at the end of the welter last year due to yes. huge public public demand it did and we or realized like we that, could yeah. we could probably do it yeah, yeah. So, so um so anyway, we are going to... This is it for Never Strays Far until the Vuelta finishes and then we'll pick it up again. Um, but for the meantime, retune your podcast machines to Revuelta, which will um, be producing daily under the auspices of the ITV Cycling people, our friends over there. So um, we'll, we'll, put a link the in the, um, we'll put a link in the show notes to that one. So okay. you, can, you can just yeah. tap across to it. If you're All not, right. probably most of the people that have listened to this are subscribed to that. So I'd like yeah. to think so. Yeah. All right. So, uh, job to do. We better crack on and uh, actually do some work starting tomorrow, David Miller. Yep. All right, Miss Walton. Right. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 